0: People around the world experimented with radio from as far back as the 1890s, but these early efforts were tests of the technology, rather than broadcasting as we know it today. Marconi's first transmission sent a signal from one side of his garden to the other, and to begin with the only sent out messages in Morse code. The first radio stations which we would recognise as such were set up in parts of North America from around 1906, but it's not entirely clear who, if anyone, was actually listening. And it's really only after the First World War that things began to move rapidly. To hello, Marconi House, London calling. We'll come back to that in a moment. This week's talk for the Portobello Time Bank will be delivered by Professor Tom Stevenson. His interest in early radio stems not from his professional field of study, the development of silicon chips, but from the enthusiasm of a colleague.
1: When I worked at the University of Edinburgh in electrical engineering, one of my colleagues there, Harry Matthews, had started a collection of old wireless sets, went out for a walk one day, found a a round echo radio that had been put out for the bin. And since he'd worked on the design of it many years before, he was a bit miffed. So he picked it up, took it home, got it working, and took it into work. And uh, it kind of spread from there. Colleagues heard it working and brought in old radio sets, and so it grew and grew and grew. Then in 1993, he set up a charitable trust to take ownership of the collection after he had gone. I'm one of the original trustees, and I'm still there. And we now have a museum at 131 High Street in Burnt Island, which is open in the summer on Wednesdays and Saturdays to the public with a a summer exhibition each year. And the 22 exhibition was about the centenary of public broadcasting in Britain.
0: Time for a little bit about the science. In the early to mid-19th century, physicists became fascinated with the potential of electricity and magnetism, and indeed electromagnetic fields. But it took a very talented Scot, James Clerk Maxwell, to work out the mathematics behind it all.
1: Michael Faraday had done a lot of pioneering work with electricity and magnetism. He'd come up with the idea of a a magnetic field, but he needed someone to work out mathematically the effect of a magnetic field on an iron particle or a magnetic particle at any point in space around a magnet. And he got in touch with a young Scottish scientist at Cambridge, James Clerk Maxwell. And Maxwell looked at all Faraday's results and came up with the mathematics to work out the force on a magnetic particle anywhere around the magnet. And then in 1865, Maxwell looked at it again for the case where the particles were not static but were vibrating. In other words, a dynamic magnetic field. And he came up with the idea that if that happened, energy would be lost to space in the form of an electromagnetic wave. He worked out the mathematics of this. He worked out the speed that that wave would travel through space. And he got a value that was almost the same as the speed of light, which had been measured experimentally in France by that time. This was a light bulb moment, a eureka moment, where he thought, aha, electromagnetic waves would have the same properties as light. He didn't do anything about it. But some years later, in fact, some years after his death in 1886, Heinrich Hertz in Germany decided he would try to generate some of what he called Professor Maxwell's electric waves. He was successful in doing this, and he could detect them a few meters away with a simple loop aerial. Hey presto, he had demonstrated what we'd now call wireless telegraphy. But he didn't realise that. He was asked if this had any practical application and he's alleged to have said none whatsoever. But this experiment of Hertz wasn't unnoticed because Marconi became aware of this and he decided to apply it and the rest is history.
0: However, it was a tragedy in the Orkneys which brought it home to the public and indeed to Parliament just what a vital, life-saving role radio, even if its most basic form, could have.
1: In 1908, October 1908, there was a bad storm in Orkney and a ship called the Isle of Erin ran aground within sight of the island of North Ronaldsey and was lost with all hands. 18 people lost their lives. It was thought that if the islanders had been able to summon a lifeboat, they might have been saved. But at that time, North Ronaldsey had no means of communicating with the outside world other than by letter. The news of this disaster only came out after several days in a letter from a lighthouse keeper. And as you can imagine, there was uh, a tremendous rumpus after this as to why did this happen and how could it be prevented? Questions were asked in Parliament even, and it was decided that it would be too difficult to lay a cable from Sandy to North Ronald for the telegraph. And why didn't they use this new Marconi technology? Because Marconi was running a very successful marine communication business. So they decided that they would install Marconi equipment in the post office on each of the islands and they would train the post office staff to operate this wireless telegraphy system. And that was installed in 1910 and it remained in use until 1946.
0: It's a well-known adage that war, for all its horror, creates a real spurt in the development of all kinds of technology, and that's what happened between 1914 and 1918.
1: During the First World War, there was a very rapid development in technology, and in particular in the use of thermionic valves to make possible amplitude modulation, where you could actually broadcast music and voice. Prior to that, it had all been just dots and dashes of Morse code, to transmit voice or music, you have to have the ability to to modulate a radio wave with a sound wave during World War One, a large number of people were trained as wireless operators, not just to operate the equipment but also to maintain it and After World War One, these guys became what we'd now call radio amateurs. they were radio enthusiasts. They were a ready-made listening audience for the test transmissions that were being done by Marconi. And the British Broadcasting Company was really a consortium who had an interest in manufacturing radio equipment. And they saw this as a huge business opportunity. The public were very enthusiastic about the idea of broadcasting. And when broadcasting started and equipment became available, It was rapidly purchased, even though at that time it was quite expensive in real terms.
0: Which brings us back to... 2LO, Marconi House, London, calling.
1: The first station, 2LO, started on the 14th of November 1922. But within a matter of days, they had a transmitter in Birmingham and Manchester, and it then spread throughout the country. Scotland's first one was Glasgow which was on the 6th of March, 1923. So we're almost coming up to the centenary of public broadcasting in Scotland.
0: Yeah, One of the interesting things though, listening to it was you'd have a programme or a presenter in London handing over to the presenter in Birmingham or handing over to the presenter in in Glasgow in those early days. It wasn't the kind of unified service that we think of today.
1: Indeed, yes. And also I think there was an agreement with the newspapers that they would not broadcast news until the evening. So their programmes tended to start in the evening with news. This was to avoid competing with uh, newspaper sales in the morning.
0: Anyone who's worked in the media knows all too well the pressures involved. And in live broadcasting, the tyranny of the clock. Back in the 1920s, however, that must have been very scary indeed.
1: They didn't have any experience to call on, if you like. And I think in the very early days, they realized that when they published their broadcasting schedule, they had a tiger by the tail, rather like a a magazine editor looking at blank pages. As the deadline approaches, they had to fill that time with something. And I believe one of the most important people in the studio was the piano player who could be relied on to play something appropriate while they got something else together for the next broadcast slot.
0: BBC Home and Forces program. Here is the news and this is John Snag
1: greeting. There was a serious initiative started by the government to provide radio sets for the general public at a reasonable cost and a number of manufacturers were invited to produce what was called a wartime utility set. It was medium wave only and it sold for about 12 pounds and they made I think 175,000 sets to keep the public informed of what was going on through regular news bulletins, which were, of course, censored and controlled. But there was competition, of course, from Germany. Lord Haw Haw was broadcasting in English to present the German propaganda.
0: And in case you're wondering, £12 in 1940? Well, you'd need to spend over £650 to get that radio in today's money. Radio technology today is dramatically different to what it was even after the Second World War, but some of the older electronics lingered on for much longer than you might expect.
1: In fact, when it comes to transmitting, valves have a lot going for them because they can operate at very high voltage, and so you can have a fairly powerful transmitter without too much high current. So valves were used, and in fact I think are still used, for for very high-powered transmitters. Unfortunately, when it comes to receivers, even miniature valves are fairly big, they're fairly power hungry and they're a bit fragile. So the big breakthrough really in radio receiving came with the transistor. Transistor radios came in in the 1950s and really took off in the 1960s.
0: Professor Tom Stevenson will have a lot more stories to tell at his talk at Belfield on Thursday. And he's bringing along some examples of what that early technology looked like I understand he may even have one of the original television sets, the one with which some people were able to watch The Coronation back in 1952. Nine in-screen, black and white, all her things have changed. And that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you have any suggestions for future ones, then get in touch through social media or by email to theportypodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for listening, bye for now, and have a good week.